purpose, the role of the board. The board should establish the company's purpose, values and strategy and satisfy itself that these and its culture are aligned. All directors must act with integrity, lead by example and promote the desired culture. Corporate governance codes around the globe are clear and yet purpose is a topic that falls very often at the bottom of an agenda or is not dealt with at all in the boardrooms. Welcome to the Better Boards podcast series. In this episode, I'm delighted to talk with Alison Platt about purpose, the role of the board. I'm Dr. Sabine Demkowski, founder and managing partner of Better Boards. We make the boards of the most ambitious organizations more effective. Our mission at Better Boards is to contribute to creating better boards. We do this by providing clients with an evidence-based approach for board evaluations and board development programs. To fulfill our mission, we give a voice to all who care about creating better boards. Alison, thank you so, so much for contributing to the Better Boards podcast series. Well, thank you for inviting me. You were an executive and a CEO before embarking on your exciting portfolio career. How did you view and use your boards when you were an executive? Well, I've, I've always believed uh, through my executive career that boards are a really important resource. They're a resource for the business. The business pays for them. You would expect a, a return from anything uh, that you're investing in as a business. But I think a, a well-constructed well-informed, cohesive board can be really essential, I think. And, you know, I've seen it work very well and, and I've, I've seen it work not so well. And I think that there are a few things in the mix that had really helped me, particularly as a, as a CEO. It's the one place in the business where you can really utilise a breadth of experience and perspective. You don't want a board who agrees with everything that you want to do. You want people to bring informed challenge. You want people to bring perspective from other sectors, other markets, other industries. But I think also it, it relies quite heavily on, on you as a CEO allowing the board into the business because I think it's very hard for boards and non-executives to contribute unless they are informed beyond the board meetings. I mean, board meetings, even if you meet monthly, the amount of frequency with which you are coming to a business is so tiny compared to an executive who is living a business every day. So I think it really is beholden on you as an exec to enable the board to be as informed as they can be, to be as intimate with the business as they can be, to get out and see and feel and touch the business. And I think if you can do that and you have board members who are willing to work that way and give a business that much time, and we'll talk no doubt about, about the role of the chair later, but provided the environment is good and relationships are good and you've a shared intent, you know, I think the board can be a terrific resource. So how has this experience shaped your thinking about boards now that you basically switched the sides? You're a chair and a non-executive director. How has this informed the way you approach your role today? Well, I think it's had a, a big impact. And, you know, when I reflect back, I, I was very, very fortunate in that 
as a serving executive and then latterly a chief executive, you know, in both cases, I had one non-exec role. I was on the board at Cable and Wireless in my last few years at Bupa and then on the board at Tesco when I was a CEO at Countrywide. And I was always struck by what a fantastic privilege that was and what great hands-on development it was because you had an opportunity as a serving executive to go into this environment where you sat on the other side of the table and you could watch, you know, in in the case of both those businesses, absolutely first-class chief executives work with a board. And, you know, I, I was always very conscious of coming away from board meetings and really reflecting on, you know, how was I performing with my own board and how was I enabling great chief executives? How was I playing some small part as a non-exec? So I was always very conscious of that. And, and as you say, now that I've stepped onto the other side of the table, I'm really, really conscious of all the things that I learned during that period, which is effectively to never forget that the executive run the business. And your job is effectively to help them be as impactful as they can be and as successful as they can be in creating value. But they run the business. I I think I'm very conscious as a non-exec that I need to own my own growth and my own performance and capability. And what I mean by that is, you know, quite often in, in executive life, people are around you and thinking all the time about where you need development, what you should be exposed to, what you need more of. But, you know, the world is changing fast. And in order to remain current and to be as good as I need to be, I think you have to be very cognizant. I'm certainly very cognizant of how much I know about the business. How much do I know about the topics that really matter to the business? How in tune am I with the issues that are shaping investors' thinking? Um, What's changing in the sector? What's best practice in other parts of the world? I think my experience as an executive has shaped my own view of how you continue to be a valuable member of a board. But look, I think the other thing is I'm constantly asking, how am I doing? And, you know, I'm very fortunate in the businesses where I'm a non-exec director that I have outstanding chairs who take seriously, you know, ongoing conversations about the performance of board members. And that's brilliant. Uh, And equally in the business that I chair, working with the CEO and colleague board members, you know, asking how are we doing collectively and how am I doing? What do you need more or less of from me? You know, one thing that frequently comes up is people who have been an executive find it very, very hard to let go because they are so much used to roll their sleeves up doing it. How difficult was it for you to let go and be more in this distant role as a non-executive and chair? I can completely empathize with that. It's hard because that sudden step away from the sheer pace of working as an executive. I don't think you'd be in executive life if you didn't like accountability, being accountable for performance. It's very difficult, I think, to make that switch. You know, I go back again to having had as an executive, having also had the experience of being a non-exec, it was incredibly helpful to remind myself that there is always a line between executive and non-exec. There are two things I would say. One is 
I've been very fortunate in that my philosophy, I think to be a good non-exec, you have to be pretty hands-on. And what I mean by that is you have to be willing to get to know and understand the business, to spend time in the business outside of the board meetings, to spend time in the sector. I've been really fortunate that's a philosophy that the chairman of the boards that I am on share. So I have been allowed in. Uh, And what I mean by that is spending time in distribution centres up and down the country for Tesco, spending time in competitors' businesses, going to other markets, seeing what grocery food retailing is like on the ground. Similarly, in the business that I chair for Legal and General, having a real opportunity to meet brokers, to sit and listen to calls, you know, all of those things, I think, help. And they help you shape the difference between influence and accountability. And I think for me, thinking about how can I have influence and bring challenge that will help us make better decisions, as opposed to how do I take accountability for those decisions? But I think the other thing is also that every board is different and you have to think about your role and the contribution you can make as unique in every company you work with. So if I give you one example, the business that I chair for Legal and General is a new business. It it launched just over a year ago. The chief executive is a, a terrific young woman. But it's her first chief executive role. She's never had an operational role before. And my contribution, my work there revolves a lot about she and I working together. You know, it's a new business. So there are new challenges. We're trying to grow the business. We're cutting new ground. And she's coming up against things she hasn't had to deal with before. And I have some experience in those things. So That's actually brilliant in that it's really quite hands-on. If I contrast that to DECRA, the pharmaceutical business that I joined in March of this year, Ian Page, the chief executive there, has been the CEO for 18 years. And Ian was 10 years in the business before that. Ian doesn't need mentoring and coaching from me on how to be a CEO. So Uh, My contribution there is different, but actually, I don't know that sector as well as I know others. So my work there is much more about where are the parallel comparisons that I can bring? How do I get up the curve on manufacturing supply, the pharmaceutical sector? How do I work with colleague non-execs to get some of their experience? So I think it's different And the contribution and therefore the weight of effort is different in every business and for every board. Let's switch over to the purpose, values and strategy. These are topics, the purpose, values and strategy that are now much more in the limelight. You know, the latest draft of the corporate governance codes stresses issue much, much more than that was the case previously. Why does this matter? I think this is a really big, a really big question and one that I've thought about a lot. And I think it comes down to three or four things. I think the first is that defining purpose and being able to articulate the values that underpin that are really what I think of as the North Star of a business. They're the constants of a business. It's DNA, if you will. And in a sense, I think unless you're really clear about that, I think it must be very hard to define strategy. You know, if you don't know why you exist and what you're for, 
how do you define what the right route forward is? So I think it's a critical foundation in defining strategy. But my experience is that it also enables much better decisions to be made and much more effective execution. And what I mean by that is, if you're clear about your purpose, your values, the culture, you know, how those values live. I mean, look, you won't find a company that hasn't got a poster with the value or a website with the values written on. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the values that that are real and they're not only stated and articulated, but they're a guide for life. They're how we do things around here and they're meaningful. And when you have that, it's a lot simpler to attract and retain people who are aligned with that. People will select you as an organization. So talent fits. Culturally, you get the right sort of people. You find the right partners. You figure out quite quickly who it is you want to work with and who isn't the right fit for you. And I would say, you know, some of the strongest manifestations for me of the value of clarity around this stuff is acquisition. You know, if I think about my time in Bupuk, in the latter years, a very significant proportion of our growth came from acquisitions in new markets. In my case, leading the emerging markets business, entering Central and Eastern Europe through Poland, entering the Far East through acquisitions in Hong Kong and China. And, you know, you find organizations who fit and can align with and are inspired by your purpose and value. And you put those businesses together and you find it furthers that purpose and those values and that strategy. And it works. And I would say the same was absolutely true when Tesco acquired Booker, which was you know, a really significant acquisition into a parallel part of the food business and yet has not only delivered on the synergies that we believed were there and that we talked to the market about being there, but has surpassed them. I was almost going to say I've done that with ease. Of course, it wasn't easy, but I've done that without friction. And so I think if you're clear about that bedrock of why you exist, what you're for, what your values are and how you're going to live them, then that gives much more clarity around strategy much more clarity about where you will and will not go and a significantly greater chance, I think, of success. And whose role is it? Is it the role of the board or is it the role of the executive committee to really put the stakes in the ground? Well, again, you know, look, I think it's a, it's a great question. And I come back to my point that the chief executive leads the business. But I do think this is a little bit chicken and egg because, you know, it's the role of the board to appoint the right chief executive. And to some degree, I think a board needs an appreciation of the value of this, you know, being clear about this core in order to, if you will, be brave enough or, or insightful enough to appoint a chief executive who will see that as crucial. Let me talk about Tesco for a minute. You know, I joined the board as part of the rebuilding of that board after the very unfortunate accounting scandal that hit the group. And the board had just appointed Dave Lewis as CEO. And suddenly Dave had this absolutely titanic task of 
rescuing, I don't think that's too strong a word, rescuing and rebuilding the Tesco brand and the Tesco business. And Dave's work with the board and with his team saying that the most important thing for us to define here is what is our purpose? What are the values of this organization? Why were we founded? What's our role in society and the communities we serve? And how do we build a business? How do we build back to be a business and a brand that can create value for its shareholders and all of its stakeholders? But that has to be our bedrock. And it has been a privilege to watch and to work alongside the board and with Dave through the last five years to watch the rebuilding of that and to have seen such a strong culture based on, you know, Tesco's fundamental purpose of helping its shoppers a little better every day and living those values and that purpose. I see in a lot of board evaluation that this topic is a little bit treated like a hot potato. It's thrown from one side to the next. Sorry to really probe you on this one. Who has to start defining the purpose, the exec in your view, the executive committee or the board? How shall this interplay best work? What I would say is, it's a question that the board should be able to answer. What is our purpose? What are our values? How does that fit? How does our strategy reflect that? And how are we demonstrating that we're living that purpose and values? And if that question can't be answered, then I think that is an issue that a board should be talking to the executive about how are they setting strategy if we're not clear about that. So I think it is for the board to be, if you like, the custodian of ensuring those points are clear and that they're real, that they live in a business. First and foremost, this is not a topic that can be outsourced. This is not something that you can say, well, let's get, I don't know, let's get consultants in or, you know, this isn't marketing or wordsmithing. So, and I think that can be quite challenging because I think there are a few things that make it not that attractive. I mean, the first is we did a very big piece of work at Booper, which, which again, I think was fundamental to the really significant growth that we had in that business. And in order to define purpose and values and your strategy, actually, what we had to do is look backwards, not forwards. And that's quite uncomfortable, I think, you know. Go back to why were you founded 70 years ago in, in the case of Booper? Um, what drove the creation of this business? What was it founded for? How true are we being to those original articles of association? You know, we're always told to keep looking forward, looking forward. But actually, sometimes it's really, really important to go back to history and heritage and the founding principles of a business. And I think the second thing is, This stuff can feel quite nebulous. You can't put it on a spreadsheet. So being prepared as a board, working with the executive to debate these things, to debate interpretation and to ensure we ask ourselves, well, how will this be a determinant of strategy, of the markets we go into, of the products we play in, of the way we price our businesses, of what we think are appropriate in terms of the use of profits and funds. So it can feel nebulous. And then I think the other thing is, it can force you to confront some uncomfortable truths. You may have to make some choices and trade-offs. I'll give you an example. 
you know, when Legal and General created the business that I chair, they were very, very clear that they were entering the equity release sector direct to customers on the basis that they wanted to be absolutely top quartile in terms of the standards of the experience that the customer had and in the eyes of the regulator. And the consequence of that is that the business isn't structured. Things like uh, reward, for instance, charges that we put to customers, they're actually quite different than they are for the core market. And the consequence of that is that it is going to take us longer to grow our business than it perhaps has taken some of our competitors who operate in a different way. And that can feel uncomfortable, but you do have to keep coming back to the fact that it was intentional to have some structural differences in that business and intentional because we think that's absolutely at one with legal and general's purpose and values and absolutely at one with being a sustainable player in a sector that we want to grow. So sometimes this stuff, it can force you to confront inconvenient or or uncomfortable truths, but that's why it's so valuable in a way, you know, that therein lies what I think of as as an incredible seam of value for businesses. So to conclude, Alison, what are the three things a board should do in order to support the creation of a strong purpose? I think it should ensure that it can answer that question and answer it collectively and individually in a way that is backed up by evidence in terms of how we do things around here, as opposed to solely a statement. So how is our purpose and values manifest in products, in pricing, in our people strategies, in terms of how we treat our customers? So I think that's crucial. I think the second is to ensure that is live and is the first step in the development or the refresh of strategies in the decision-making lenses about evaluating significant disposals or acquisitions, deployment of capital. So I think it's a live consideration for the big deals. And I guess the third would be to really be sure that you understand where the sources of value can come from that purpose and those values and to be supporting the executive in entering new space in pushing boundaries that can be a contemporary manifestation of your purpose and values. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much, Alison, for contributing to the Better Boards podcast series. Thank you, Sabine. I've enjoyed it enormously. How can we help you and your board? We at Better Boards love to hear from you. If you have an idea for a podcast, if you'd like to hear more about our research and our approach to board evaluations and board development, drop us a line. You can best reach us on info at better-boards.com. Thank you for listening.